0: Welcome back to another episode of Best Case Ever, the mini podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Rajiv Thavanathan. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Dr. Carrie Samsel. She's a staff emergent physician at the Ottawa Hospital, and she's also an assistant professor at University of Ottawa. At her job, she's the medical director of the Sexual Assault and Partner Abuse Care Program that has positively affected the lives of so many people, garnered national media attention, and earned her the Al Drummond Award for Advocacy from the Canadian Association of Emerged Physicians. Carrie, it's great to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us about your best case ever?
1: So you're getting towards the end of your shift, and you get an EMS patch come in that says we have a pregnant woman who is VSA. CPR in progress, five minutes out.
0: Okay, just right down to business, huh?
1: It's like, let's go, basically. So you're in that kind of tidy up mode, let's get everything organized for the next person coming on, and then you have to hit the adrenaline switch again, and away you go. And the nice thing is, is that we did get that five minutes. So we had a chance to get our resuscitation area ready for this patient, we set up two specific areas. So we set up one area for the resuscitation of the mother, and we set up another area for the resuscitation of the soon-to-be-born baby. And at that time, we also paged OB and NICU pediatrics colleagues just because this was something that was far more comfortable for them, not as comfortable for us. And we wanted to have their expertise in the room with us at the time of resuscitation if we
0: possibly could.
1: Much like any oral examination, the OB team was not available. (laughs) They were actually in the middle of another C-section.
0: Oh no, so you're kind of on your own for that.
1: We were on our own for that, which was okay. We knew that they knew and would get to us as soon as they possibly could. But it was okay, you're flying solo on this adventure. The NICU team actually got to us very quickly, which was very nice. And we set up kind of two areas. So everything that we needed for the resuscitation of the mother was in the resuscitation of the mother room. And everything that we needed for the resuscitation of the fetus slash baby was in the other room, including all of the appropriately dosed and sized and weighted drugs and equipment, the baby warmer, the whole deal.
0: Yeah. So we talk about preparing your staff stuff in space. And it sounds like you did that the best that you could with such a short five minute warning. So what happened next?
1: So EMS rolls in, they were doing CPR, she was wedged. So as we are all appropriately taught, 30 degree wedge to the left, and she was transferred over to our resuscitation area. And the thing that was interesting about that is that you're used to doing CPR on people. This is something that we do very frequently, very commonly. But when somebody is wedged, it changes the angles and it changes the perspective that you have for everything that you're going to do in a resuscitation type avenues. So your CPR is 30 degrees off. So you have to be able to position yourself and push harder to be able to get the kind of output that you would do for somebody laying completely supine. There's less access to the person on the left hand side of their body just because they're turned to the left. So you have a little bit of a tighter space there. So when you have your nursing teams on each arm, which is usually what happens, the team on the left hand side is a little bit tighter than the team on the right hand side.
2: Anton here, I just have to interject for one minute. All these issues that they face with the patient in 30 degrees lateral decubitus is exactly the reason why current recommendations are not to place the patient in 30 degrees lateral decubitus, but rather to assign a team member to manually push the uterus to the left to relieve that aorto-cable pressure. We'll have images in the show notes for the two specific methods of achieving this.
1: And then we had basically designated a team that was monitoring the true resuscitation itself. So the CPR, the bagging, drugs of resuscitation that were being used if we were going to tube her, all those kind of things. And then me as the team leader, I was staying... Out of that specifically, and making the decision whether we were going to do the perimortem C-section or not, and if that was going to happen, I was going to be the one that did it.
0: Okay, awesome. And were you mindful of the timing? I know they say to start within four minutes of an arrest.
1: Absolutely. So we knew the nice thing about our medical center is that we have these nice clocks on the wall. So somebody hit the start timer. So it's kind of like out of a movie in a way that you watch that time tick up. It's almost like you know in James Bond where it's ticking down and it always stops at 007 kind of thing. Like you're watching it tick up and you know that you have a very finite amount of time to make this decision.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like having that five minute heads up really made all the difference for you in this case.
1: Absolutely. So that five minutes was probably the best five minutes that we had to be able to kind of get our heads together, get all our stuff together. So we actually had the perimortem C-section tray Out and open. So, you know, blow the dust off of it, get it ready to go, because this is not something we do very often. And honestly, the decision point of deciding to go to that perimortem section was the hardest part of the case, just because it's something that we don't do very often. And it's like, are you doing the right thing? Is this the appropriate almost first step in the resuscitation, knowing that the ongoing CPR is going to keep going. Like That's almost like background information. And so once that decision was made, it was like, go, let's do it.
0: Yeah. And that seems to be a common theme to these kinds of cases is that the decision to do a drastic procedure is often the hardest part about the procedure. You know, we just recently did a best case ever about ED
2: thoracotomy for traumatic cardiac arrest, where that was a similar lesson. Anton again. As pointed out by Sarah Gray, who's been on the show a bunch of times and has lectured extensively on resuscitative hysterotomy, the four-minute rule really is not evidence-based. There are case reports of maternal survival to good neurologic outcomes up to 15 minutes and newborn survival to good neurologic outcome up to 30 minutes. So yes, start that C-section as soon as possible, but thinking that it's not worth doing after 15 or 20 minutes of cardiac arrest is wrong. Actually, the biggest pitfall in this type of scenario, as Rajiv was alluding to, is waiting too long to start the procedure. As soon as pulsing is confirmed in mom, preferably by POCUS, grab your number 10 scalpel, scissors and two Kelly clamps and go. So decision is made. You start the procedure. How did that go?
1: It was actually easier than I thought it was going to be to do the procedure. The procedure itself isn't that hard. I decided to do, you know, it was vertical midline incision over her abdomen incision through the uterus, cut down with a pair of scissors, lift out the baby, clamp, clamp, and literally hand off to the NICU team. And that was that, basically. Oh, like wow. baby was out. So and that took probably another 45 seconds. Like it was fast.
0: Yeah. Now you mentioned a vertical incision. My memory from my OB rotation was that for a C-section, you do a lower horizontal incision.
1: Yep. So the lovely fan and steel that nobody can spell is that... So for me, I believe it's
0: pronounced "puffin" and Yes,
1: exactly. It's like pterodactyl. But so for me, this is not something I do. The OB people are, you know, the masters at doing C sections, so they can have a smallest possible cut in the most anatomically appropriate and you know, cosmetically nicest looking place. For me, I needed fetus out, and so I needed to have the biggest openest view to be able to see what I'm doing in the safest possible manner. So vertical midline cut down and then we'll put it back together as nice as we can afterwards
0: yeah as matt lipinski says big cut for a big problem
1: yes exactly that is a very very good way of putting it you also mentioned
0: clamp clamp what were you talking about with that
1: so basically what that was is as i lateraled the fetus over to the nicu team the OB team came in right at that time. So it was, you know, almost fortuitous. <laughs> and what they did was they grabbed the very large Satinsky clamps, and there's two of them in your perimodum C-section tray, and they clamp on either side of the uterus, kind of midway along on the posterior side of things. And what they do there is that they're basically clamping both bilaterally, the uterine arteries. And so they're, as you can imagine, when you're doing a big surgical procedure like this, and particularly into a uterus, there's a lot of blood post-procedure. And so when you're doing a resuscitation, they want to clamp that off. It's basically immediate hemostasis from the uterus. And then you look to see what the effect of that is on the mother at the time. So is this immediate hemostasis giving you pulse and circulation back on the mum? such that, okay, now let's try to fix it, because there's really no other way to get immediate uterine hemostasis in that kind of situation.
0: So Carrie saw the specialist surgical team doing this. Me, I'm not a surgeon. I'm a pretty simple guy. I have a vague sense that the uterine arteries run longitudinally alongside it, but I wouldn't feel comfortable doing this in situ. It's a cool thought, but maybe best left to those who know exactly what they're doing, or maybe as a last resort, if bleeding is a significant issue post-procedure. Carrie, my assumption is that this was probably pretty new to you too, huh?
1: Absolutely. So I had never seen this described anywhere. So not in any of the procedural textbooks, nothing within emergency medicine. And I asked the OB staff afterwards, I was like, that's a very interesting piece of the procedure. And he said that like, It's the only way to get true hemostasis of the uterus at that time is to do that. I also did not have a good grasp of the anatomy at the time of, and especially because there's blood and fluid everywhere. Like This is not a view that we are used to doing, whereas the OB people are very much like this is their space.
2: So what if you don't have OB on board right at the time of the perimortem C-section if you don't have OB help and clamping off the uterine artery is beyond you, it's certainly beyond me. It is acceptable instead to pack the abdominal cavity with sterile towels, close the skin until OB is available. Baby's delivered,
0: placenta's delivered. You swept the uterus for clots and debris. What do you do next? How does the case actually resolve?
1: So, after we clamp clamp remove placenta, this was all the OB doing this, I was just kind of standing back and being their helper at this point, swept for clot and debris, look around, and then look to see what the effect was on the resuscitation of the main patient at this point, which the team had been faithfully continuing on this resuscitation. So unfortunately, at that point, with our POCUS, we did not see cardiac activity. And at that point, the decision was made to cease resuscitation for her.
0: I see. It's not an entirely unexpected outcome for that patient, I guess, who is obviously very, very sick.
1: Yeah, she was, you know, one could argue that she was already at that when she came to us. We just tried to do something to change that trajectory.
0: Now, this is... Relatively young patient. Yes. You know, second patient, you know, the smaller passenger on board. Mm -hmm. This must have been a very emotionally difficult thing, a very stressful thing for you and the whole team. How did you navigate that after the case sort of had run its course?
1: it was very difficult this was probably one of the more difficult debriefs that we've done post resuscitation for the exactly the reasons that you mentioned so we did do the moment of silence at the bedside for that i'm a big fan of that just cuz it gives everybody a minute just to even let their heads clear and you know get things together from that perspective the other thing that was a bit challenging from a debrief perspective is that we had so many other people there than we normally would in an emergency department setting so we're kind of used to our own people our nurses our rt our PCAs, our physicians, whomever. In this particular circumstance, we had the OB team, we had the NICU team, we had all of our people, and we also had a whole bunch of first responders. So we had both fire and EMS that came in with this patient. And so there were different faces. There were people who maybe were responding in a different way than we were used to being eMERGE people. And so we had to do a debrief in a big crowd,
0: Yeah, I've seen you do a few debriefs and sort of delivering bad news scenarios. And I will say that you are one of the more sensitive physicians (laughs) I know, and and very good at sort of managing those kinds of scenarios. So one final question, I mean, this is obviously, like, I'm going to say once in a career kind of procedure, hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, how do you practice for something like that? Something that is so infrequent, but like really high stakes? Do you have a favorite way of kind of getting ready for that scenario? Is it Doing sim, is it mental rehearsal?
1: Sim is great for this kind of stuff, just because you can get those hand skills. And honestly, the hand skills are transferable from everything. Like a surgical incision is a surgical incision. Sorry to all of our surgery colleagues that might be listening to this. But, you know, if you're doing a thoracotomy or a hysterotomy or whatever, like the actual hand on scalpel blade cut through is the same. So if you're getting a chance to practice any kind of hand skills, that's a great thing. For me, it's the kind of mental rehearsal model that I use. So close your eyes, think of everything you're going to do, and even kind of move your hands or your body or get a sense of what the room is going to look like. You know, know that there's going to be a big gush of fluid and know that that's going to probably get on your feet and get used to, you know, just train that through your head. And before you go into the procedure, if you have the luxury of that five minute heads up to just take that minute, run through it, and then you feel confident. It's like that muscle memory, you're primed and ready to do it.
0: So it sounds like you're a believer in both simulation, deliberate practice and mental rehearsal. Absolutely. So that's a really high yield case with Dr. Samsel. I just want to quickly summarize some of her points just to really bring them home. She talked about the importance of utilizing any kind of heads up about an impending critical care case using the mnemonic staff stuff space. So that's making sure your team is assembled and briefed, you have the equipment you need and your recess room is ready. Now we didn't delve into the perimortem C-section as a procedure a whole lot, but it's a good idea to have a sense of why we do it. In one case series of 94 patients that was done between 1980 and 2010, they found that 54% of mothers who underwent this procedure survived a hospital discharge, and it was not considered harmful in any case. So what does a perimortem C-section do? Well, the two main things are that it improves venous return and cardiac output and reduces oxygen consumption by removing the fetus and placenta, which, if you didn't know, it gets like a huge amount of blood and oxygen from maternal circulation. Aside from that, the procedure can also facilitate both closed chest compressions from the outside and even allow internal cardiac massage. And by reducing that intra-abdominal pressure from the fundus of the uterus, it can even make ventilation easier as well. Now, the generally agreed-upon indications are that the procedure should be started after four minutes of cardiac arrest by mom if there's no ROSC with ACLS interventions. But fetal survival isn't zero after that. That said, the goal is to deliver the fetus by the five-minute mark. Now, the gestational age that mom can be at is pretty variable. Emerge Clinics in North America says 20 weeks. Robertson-Hedges says 24 weeks. Just understand that if you deliver the fetus between 20 and 24 weeks, it may not be viable. The AHA gets around this by saying that you could do it if the mom has an obviously gravid uterus. It's important to remember that this is a procedure for mom's ROSC, not for resuscitation of baby. Basically, my takeaway from this is if the uterine fundus is past the umbilicus, you're good to go. There's a great article from 2016 in the Emergency Medicine Journal by Perry that covers all of this. It's a great review article, and we'll put a link for that in the show notes as well. Another point of controversy that Carrie and I talked about was the positioning of the pregnant patient during resuscitation for cardiac arrest. Now, she mentioned in her case that they were wedging 30 degrees left lateral, but the AHA actually makes some recommendations about doing manual uterine displacement instead of this. Specifically, although you can consider using full left lateral for your unstable pregnant patient, that in the setting of cardiac arrest, there's some issues with wedging. So the patient might slide off the bed. It changes your CPR vector, potentially making it less effective, and that might be clinically important. And the heart itself can also move in the chest if you do that. And frankly, aortic oval compression may still even occur with uh, wedging as opposed to manual displacement. My takeaway from this is that if you have the bodies available in the room, that manual displacement is probably the smarter way to go. They do also specify in that document that there's no evidence to change your hand position for CPR with a uh, third trimester pregnant patient, and no medications should be withheld because of concerns about fetal teratogenicity in that context. Now, we also didn't talk about the technical aspects of the procedure a whole lot, and obviously podcasting is not the best medium for that. It's probably better explained with a video, and Sarah Gray, who's a well-known guest expert to EM cases, did an exceptional one during Essentials of M-Crate with Scott Weingart a few years ago. That's easily found online, so you should go check that out. Lastly, Carrie mentions when you have a patient unexpectedly die in the emergency department, the importance of a pause, some sort of moment of acknowledgement and respect for the person's life, and also a debrief, which is important for everyone, but especially learners and staff who maybe aren't exposed to that kind of stress as often. So, Carrie, thanks for being here today and talking to us about this once-in-a-lifetime case—or at least I hope it's a once-in-a-lifetime case. Everyone, be sure to follow Carrie on Twitter. That's at Carrie Samsel with a K, and follow me too. It's at Rajiv Thava. That's R A J I V T H A V A. And until next time, keep your stick on the ice. This is Best Case Ever mini podcast series.